Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to episode four of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith. A voyage into the mechanics of creativity and how artists keep that creative ship sailing. Hello everyone, I hope you're all safe and well. We are still in lockdown here in the UK and it looks like us creators will be for the foreseeable. So it seems like the theme of this pod is even more relevant than ever. How will artists be able to stay afloat in these turbulent times? On a personal level, I'd like to really thank each and every one of you who's tuned into this pod and to one of my live streams. These gigs have been the real source of comfort and purpose for me, as well as an essential stream of income from your generous donations. So I really do thank you for the bottom of my demonic rock and roll heart. When you have a sec, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review as it really helps other people to find the pod. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends as there's nothing that helps spread the word more than a recommendation from a mate. Another way you can help me make these podcasts is by donating. You can do so by heading over to jessiesmithuk.com and click donate. The pod is currently totally independent, so anything you can do would really help me keep bringing you these stories. If you've got any comments or ideas for the show, or you'd just like to get in touch, you can do so by emailing stayinalivepod at gmail.com. One email we particularly enjoyed this week was from Sue Robinson. She says, and I quote, My nephew was a musician until he was lured to writing and politics, and I learned about music in the 90s and noughties from him. It is interesting to hear the up-to-date info of what's happening now. The music business has changed. It has changed a lot and mostly not for the better. Musicians haven't changed, though. The things you discuss are the same things that previous generations of musicians have discussed. Same passions, same ambitions. It is life-consuming. It isn't a choice. It's a necessity. Thanks for that email, Sue. I really love the idea that the game has changed, but the players are the same. Today's guest is one of the best bass players I've ever had the privilege of working with. As well as being a permanent fixture in the classic rock show, today's guest was B.G. Robin Gibbs bass player and later musical director from 2003 until his death in 2012. He is also an accomplished songwriter and composer and has toured with many other bands and artists such as Sabat, that I pronounced wrong in this pod, (laughs) Saxon, Jolyn Turner and Messiah's Kiss to name but a few. Having stood alongside him on the Classic Rock Show tour, I can speak from personal experience that his playing, as well as his energy on and off stage, is second to none. Speaking to him from his home studio in Nottingham is Wayne Banks. Have you been doing Insanity? Uh, yeah, every other day. Every other day, yeah. yeah. I've, I've fuck been you, really, Sean. Uh, yeah, honestly. I've even got Amelia saying, fuck you, Sean. It's so funny. <laughs> Should be here. Sean T. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. So we're recorded, by the way. Uh, I'm here with Wayne Banks. Insanity. Yeah, you can say whatever you like. <laughs> that, that's, that's the beauty of podcasting. Right, so, okay. 
Yeah, uh, I'll just introduce you. So I'm here with Wayne Banks, who's a really great mate of mine. He's sat in his studio. He's got his locks all tied up underneath an Adidas cap tonight. Yeah. And uh, he's got his shirt on for a change. Yeah, well, the heating's only just come on. I've been sat in this room all day. Um, yeah. Do you believe I'm sat here trying to do uh, a bass arrangement of Goldfinger? Oh, James really? Bonfie. Yeah. And I've Brilliant. been breaking, breaking my hand doing it. And there's no reason to be doing it. It's completely pointless. I've but, been sat you know. learning, uh, learning Black Hole Sun properly today. <laughs> Great. I put some, uh, I put some thick, some really thick strings on my three three five, and uh, I'm going to do a cover of it, I think, at some point. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so basically, mate, um, just wanted to have a bit of a chat about. Um, about your life and career really the whole point of this podcast is for for the audience to sort of to get pick up some tips about what it's like to survive as a musician through the years and um and just how different people have have uh, have done it and maintained it and everything else and and it's quite apt that you're the first person i've recorded obviously because the podcast going to be called staying alive and obviously <laughs> you've got a lot of uh, connections with that but i'm sure we'll come back to that later but yeah just if you could just tell everyone why why you started playing bass in the first place and i actually wanted to be a songwriter i used to have a really long walk to school as a kid like they used to do in the 70s when pedophiles yeah. didn't, didn't exist <laughs> uh, have you not so, heard of you tree <laughs> exactly so the mum would, <laughs> would pack us off for a good you know kind of half an hour 40 minute walk to school and in those days because i'm 50 years old now so you know we're talking mid 70s here um, yeah there was no walkmans they would not been invented and all the rest of it so all you you just daydreamed all the way to school on your own and yeah yeah you know, there was always music playing in the house. My mum always was playing music constantly at stupid volume. And, what kind uh, of stuff? She, well, she was dead into the 50s stuff. Elvis and the Everly Brothers. Mm. And, uh, and Demis Rousseff, who I absolutely love. Mm. <laughs> Bizarrely enough. Uh, well, I actually got to meet him once, which is a whole different story. Um, <laughs> he was completely surprised that somebody of my age knew who the hell he was and, and liked him. <laughs> <laughs> um, much to how he's discussed is I actually know more about Demis Roussos than I do Black Sabbath, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I used to walk to school and uh, and I'd just daydream and tunes would come into my head and I would I would write lyrics. And yeah. so I, I kind of I had an uncle that was in a band and I always uh, I used to go around to my my grandma's and he'd be playing and uh, I would sit outside his door and he'd be playing uh, Hendrix at God knows what volume playing mm-hmm. along. And I always dreamt that, that um, you know, I could do that and just be in a band. And eventually when I got to be, being about 14, there was a couple of guitarists by then in the in the school who wanted to form a band. Uh, and nobody wanted to be the bass player. That, that's so often the case, isn't it? People say, oh, I just ended up becoming the bass player. You know, yeah. Paul McCartney was the same, wasn't he? And, you know, I'm sure there's tons of other people just become it by default. Yeah. So I never actually started on guitar. I started on bass because just just because I wanted to be in the band, and obviously mm. no one was. So as a was, songwriter, though, is that has that been a hindrance over the years? Because because obviously it's surely easier to write songs on guitar or piano. I would have thought. Uh, yeah. I've, well, I actually do play six string guitar these days. I mm. have I, I got an acoustic guitar 
quite, well, probably, probably when I was about 18. I started playing baseball when I was 14. So by then it was, you know, I needed it to help me write. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did play a little bit of piano, not to the standard you do, but, you know, so I got into that whole thing later a bit. Um, mm. And nowadays, I, I still I still write on both, really. It just, just, just depends. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I get an idea in my head, and it's it's the whole the whole band's playing away in there. So you've yeah, got yeah, singing. You've got guitars going, the beat and everything, and you you wake up going, oh, I've just dreamt a song there, and I go, oh, actually, it might be one of it's my own. It, it yeah, so, I did that the other night. Actually, I got up about three in the morning. I've, I've been a bit restless. I'm sure. Well, I think everyone's sleeping not very well at the moment, aren't they? Just because of everything that's going on. But yeah, I, I did that the other night. Actually, just got up and sort of had this weird sort of country, sort of four part harmony a cappella thing going on, and I recorded it the next day. It was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My phone is just like yours, probably just chock full of r- ridiculous ideas. Not you know, most yeah. of them never rock songs and stuff like that. That's uh. That's something in another band I do that we kind of write to order with that a bit. Mm. A traditional heavy metal band. So we go down that route of let's try and write something in that vein, you know. Yeah. You've got quite a diverse um, kind of repertoire, really, haven't you? Because you go from sort of being in like your first band, Sabbath, to to like to obviously doing the, the, the Robin Gibb thing. So what what's what's your kind of where do you sit naturally, do you think, as a songwriter? Um, I come out with a lot of things that are a bit primacy. I don't know if you. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, of course. So it's um, so if I'm jamming with the, with just a drum beat in the back, and I, a good mate of mine I used to jam with a lot. We don't do it so much nowadays, but um, then it be, it's it's then it, from a just a playing point of view, it'll come out in a kind of primus, maybe Chili Peppers way. Mm. But from dreaming, and I do a lot of dreaming songs. Or just walking around daydreaming, that kind of thing. Like, mm. like, like any style, really. I suppose it's. I've just been doing one that, that's quite um, a, a, a kind of jazzy country type of thing, similar to yourself, I suppose. But cool. that, that's because I've just got a stand up bass and I've just been trying to yeah, yeah. bass for the last um, two weeks. So I think it's, it's on my mind, you know. It's funny how, how a different instrument or just a different feeling will just make you write a completely different type of song, isn't it? Like, yeah. um, if, if you buy a new guitar, you end up just playing different stuff. Like, you'd write a completely different song on a Strat than you would on a Les Paul, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I don't know where I fit song, songwriting-wise. I kind of, when, it, when I'm just left to my own, it'll probably come out a bit, because in general, I think I'm quite a happy person. And, and I think so too. Having a laugh. <laughs> I, I write the most miserable, sad songs. Mm. You know, kind of a bit crowded house, that type of thing. Pearl Jam, that kind of miserable. Yeah, yeah. Everything's wrong, and I think I think that's probably why the rest of my life's quite happy. So I just yeah. on my own, you know, get it out of my system. <laughs> so what was the what was the kind of first band you were in when you were a kid, and how, how did you how, how far did you get with it? My very first band was a band called Rampant Socks. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and we, uh, I actually went along to the first rehearsal and I'd never played bass in my life. I didn't have a bass amp. I didn't know anything about it. No one had told me where to put my fingers and I didn't know if you put them 
on the fret, behind the fret, or what. I just didn't even know how to tune the thing. I went, uh, but they were hassling me for weeks because the story of me getting my first bass is quite a long story. Right. Um, well, we got I, time, mate. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so I digress. So, uh, getting get my first bass is, um, um, I was supposed to be going on a school trip to Hadrian's Wall. I mean, yeah. I'd never, I'd never been on a, a stay overnight school trip before, and my sister had done it. I've got an older sister, and she'd done it the year before. So this this time it was my turn, promised by the the folks. And uh, my dad had only just started up his business on his own, so money was a bit tight, and he was he generally didn't want to. He paid the deposit money of twenty five quid, and mm. didn't really want to. Uh, he was moaning about paying the rest of the money and the. Uh, 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 spending money i might need at the time yeah anyway a friend of mine came up and says oh i've got i've got a i've got a base if you want to buy it it's it's because uh, i already joined this band i still hadn't got a base or loan <laughs> and uh he said i've got one if you want to buy it 25 quid and i was like where am i going to get 25 quid from so I, I, I went to my dad i said i'll tell you what dad if we can get the deposit money back for this trip then you don't have to pay any more i have that money and buy this base <laughs> and then <laughs> And then uh, we're all okay. And he was like, yeah, all right then. He said, but how are you going to get out of the trip? And I'm like, yeah. And then my grandmother died. Just out of the blue. How so, lucky. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so we concocted this story that I couldn't go on the trip because I'd got to go to my grandmother's funeral. But it, then, uh, uh, well, they... And this went on with the geography teacher for a while. And eventually I got called to the headmaster's office where they caned me. No way. Yeah, they came with you. I had to hold my hand out and they caned me. And I was like, what's that for? Said, well, it's because you're lying about your grandmother, but you obviously need the money for some reason because, you know, they'd never keep the body that long before they buried her. You know, I think that was the hole in our story. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, but anyway, you obviously need the money and uh, here's, here's a check for 25 quid and then, but don't lie anymore and sent me out of the room. So I had a, I had a, a pretty hand smarting pretty well but i had 25 quid so i went and got the bass <laughs> no way so you sort of sold your soul really before you'd even picked up the bass guitar <laughs> right, yeah and i'm so happy I, i've never been so happy to be caned in my life <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah, no so way. then yeah, sorry that you're going to say uh, you very next day, well, yeah, the very next day we were down in in a, a an old cellar of, of a mate's house and uh um, my best mate had just got a drum kit as well and that, that is a funny story because he had a, uh, he, we, we, we carried his kit down and he'd, not, he'd never played either. So he refused to play the bass drum because he said that those were, they looked, you know, forgive the 1970s lingo, but he said they looked gay and that's what um, people in marching bands used. So he wouldn't right. use the bass drum. And he didn't have a right. bass drum pedal anyway. No, we didn't even know. Um, Has he not heard of John Bonham at that point? Oh, no, not at all. I ain't got a <laughs> We were into the Sex Pistols, actually. That was our uh, big thing. Yeah, that's strangely yeah. enough why I always wanted a Fender Precision. Although nowadays people always say, "Oh, you, you know, you just like Steve Harris, blah blah blah," which is nice, but it's not the reason I did it. It was mm. Precision because Sid Vicious had one, you know. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so we got to this this rehearsal. Um, like I say, drummer refusing to play the bass drum, um, and then just hitting things randomly. And uh, they asked if we had a bit of a three-chord thing going off. I think we played Moon Over Marin by the Dead Kennedys, which is a great dot-following starter for bass guitar players. Right. Uh, 
A, G and F kind of thing going on. Mm. And, uh, That's my kind of song, that is. Yeah. And, and, and they kept saying, and I was playing with a pick at the time, um, uh, again, because I wanted to be Sid Vicious. And uh, uh, they recorded the whole thing. And we went to a, a friend's house uh, a couple of days later and they played it. And uh, they were so disgusted at how bad, because I didn't know what playing in time meant. I hadn't got mm-hmm. a clue. None so, of us do, do they, when you're first starting out? Yeah. They kept saying, keep in time. And I was going, I don't know what they mean. Time, time is a rhythm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, uh, and they, the, the lead singer, who was the most accomplished musician out of all of us, guitar player as well, he was so disgusted that of his of the older, slightly older friends laughing at him that I was sat on the floor at the time and he, he came past me and just booted me in the head. What? You had quite a quite an aggressive start to your musical career, didn't you? And and that was it actually. That was a great thing because because we didn't fall out as friends. He was just like, You're really embarrassing and just kicked me in the head. And then I thought, right, I'm gonna get really good, I'm gonna show you. You know. <laughs> Wow, that is really baptism of fire, isn't it? I got obsessed with it after that. I, I was, I was like, I'm not having this. I'm, I want to be good at this, you know. So, yeah. Well, when did, yeah. when did you get good? When did you know that you were sort of good? Was there a point, or did, was it just a progressive thing? I was still in that band, and we we played. We we got to the point where we played at school at a school disco, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd started to play with my fingers, and and the. Uh, one of the guys in the band had introduced me to Phantom of the Opera by Iron Maiden as mm. the ultimate baseline to play. So I sat there for, for forever at home trying to play that. And um, that and Run to the Hills, that was it. That's what it was, where, where it's that kind of galloping baseline thing going to, yeah. to, to really fast. And I would sit there for hours, a lot like, like you can when you're a kid. I would mm. just sit there for just hours in my bedroom just playing de- 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 until my hands were falling off and then I'd try again and keep mm. going and then eventually I could play that song and all the kids around all, all my schoolmates were just amazed so at that, that point I thought I'm good <laughs> <laughs> that's it <laughs> I'm special you know and uh, do you remember your your when was the first time you got paid to play the bass when when did you sort of become a pro yeah, we we got that school band split up, and we we got a, our own band together after that. And we played Rock City when we were eighteen, and we uh, supported a band called Last of the Teenage Idols, which were a, a thing at the time. Mm. Uh, and and that was kind of if you uh, the the breakthrough for me really, because mm. uh, at that time I was obsessed with people like Billy Sheen and. You know, I didn't play much, much bass, really. I was just soloing as much as I could. You know, mm. and I didn't care a shit about the song. It was all about what I could do. <laughs> and, and strangely enough, I got, I, I got noticed by a, a, a bloke there who wanted to go out with my sister. And that's a, that's a recurring theme, getting him back right. with his sister. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, from, from that, um, when Sabat were looking for a bass player, I got recommended by the guy who was trying to go out with my sister because he'd seen right. me at this gig. Um, so I got the gig with them, and that was, I would say, the, and I was 19, nearly 20 when that happened, I think. Yes, yeah, so we're jumping on a bit. Um, but that that was the one that uh, then I realised I really got to get my shit together because they were great musicians. Mm. So, 
was thrash metal, but to play thrash metal properly like they did. I mean, Andy, who's, who, who was in that band, the songwriter, he plays for Priest nowadays, so mm. yeah, he's a great musician then. And he knew all the music theory, and up until that point, I'd just been literally playing off records and playing by ear. Um, yeah, yeah. It was then that I thought, right, i really got to get some lessons. So I used to go down to London um, every, every two weeks um, to go and have a lesson with a guy called Joe Hubbard, who was a pretty big fusion session player at the time. He'd played with um, Gary Newman and Carly Simon and people like this. Mm. So I started with him, and then uh, and then I was, went with another guy called Stuart Bradley, who played with uh, in Roger Taylor, a Queen's band, The Cross. Mm. And he was a great bass player as well. Um, yeah, so I just, I just did a lot of that for, for a good five or six years after that. I really tried to get my my act together on the theory side of it as well you know and they introduced me to a lot more than just rock music uh, uh, from a playing point of view because mm. uh, at that time it was just well i'm in a i'm in a heavy metal band and that's what i do you know i guess a lot of people don't realize that that because they, they listen to heavy metal and thrash metal or whatever and they think it's think it's just a load of noise but actually it's so technical isn't it a lot of it and oh, all the time yeah. signatures and key changes and all that stuff. I, I had to do some Slayer stuff a few years back when I was doing a, that um, that film project called Gutted Zamarung. And, um, you know, that that was the song I was most nervous about of the whole set. You know, we were doing Zeppelin and the Doors and stuff. But doing Rain and Blood, that was the one that petrified me every night. Because you can't fake yeah. it. And you've got you've got to do it with with such attitude, haven't you? Yeah. And, and for that to sound good. I mean, um, Andy Sneeper, I was telling you about, who plays for Priest now, he was he was such a um, a dictator in that band in a good way because they, they I'd never rehearsed before um, you know when I got with Sabbath that was a, a, a fully full time professional gig mm. so we, we and he he had a rehearsal room in the studio and all that and we would literally rehearse every day we'd go up and do a whole day's rehearsal um, getting ready to go on tour and get well at first it was getting ready to record the album so we'd go up there every day play all day and then we go to the gym and work out and try and look <laughs> and um but it, the, what it did for your playing was unbelievable because you got especially my right hand conditioning because mm. i'm playing metal, but i played with my fingers and i've got to keep up with these guys yeah uh, it was uh you they were all like oh yeah but you know you you, you should play with a pick because it's more that kind of music and i didn't want to so it was either i really go to town on getting my right hand really solid and it's, mm. it's i would say those formative years have helped me you know you know because having a really solid right hand rhythm kind of thing is mainly the point of, 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 a, of a bass in most bands is that you know the timing and the groove and all that kind of thing and and if you've got all that in what's uh, i explain you've got all that in reserve that you can go really fast and you don't need to but you've got it your hands really in really good condition if you know what I mean totally is that so that was your that was your hamburg that was your ten thousand hours of oh, doing yeah. all the practice and yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, I'll give andy a big up for that because he was he was really um strict you know it had to be and and those their, their songs were weird um sabbat songs they had kind of 13 different riffs and then you'd go back to the start and then redo those 13 different riffs and then you'd go off onto a it was more like the way jazz music's put together but it was heavy metal riffs instead of chords, you know, two, five, one chord sequences, if you know what I mean. 
Mm. So they then to another B section, and then you'd eventually come back to the first 13 riffs kind of thing. And it just didn't make sense to me at the time. I remember saying to Andy, I said, how do you memorize all this? Yeah. Just said, well, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and the next thing always leads on to the next thing, and eventually you get it. Yeah. But it was just sheer hard work, and that's it, you know, so... Yeah, yeah it definitely. Great, it was a great learning ground. Everything since then has been easy. <laughs> yeah, I remember for me, I, I think I was 18 or might have been 19, but I think I was 18. And we went out to um, Chavinia in northern Italy. We did a ski season out there and we were doing like nine gigs a week in this in this bar where you could still smoke inside back then <laughs> in Italy. And uh, we were doing like, you know, at least two hours a night, you know, sometimes more in and, you know, one night we'd play like all Chili Peppers. The next night we'd do all Blink-182. And and then we'd just be trying to play as many songs as we could. But as a vocalist, it was so good for my stamina, you know, just singing that many, just doing that many gigs and obviously being that young and obviously getting that pissed as well. It, yeah. <laughs> and you just, you you soon learn, don't you? Speaking of which, I'm going to have a whiskey, I think. Yeah, I need to go and get one. Can I pause a minute? While I go yeah, of course you can, yeah. We'll have a we'll have a quick break while you go and grab yourself a drink. Back in a minute. Hold on. All right, mate. <laughs> oh, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> cheers, mate. It's great to chat to you, man. Yeah, good. Thanks for doing this. It's great. You, you're always a man of uh, many ideas and always on it. <laughs> Do you know what, mate? I'm, I was really nervous about doing this. None more. No, the main reason being that I've, I've always thought I've got a really girly high voice because obviously I'm a rock singer and my speaker voice is really high. And then the first person I interview is you who's got the most manly, boomy <laughs> voice ever. <laughs> so, this is a real baptism of fire. So. <laughs> well, I hope but, it's not um, too boring. <laughs> also, you can speak you can speak for England, mate, which is good. So I, know, I knew it wasn't going to be a boring one. <laughs> we've had a few uh a few nights like this on the tour bus anyway haven't we yeah yeah it's been great. <laughs> i miss that god yeah i know doing doing gigs Are you, how have you been surviving this uh corona crisis have you been have you stayed sane obviously you're spending time with the girls and well being completely honest with you you know i do a bit of truck driving as well when i'm not on tour yeah that when this first kicked off that was crazy and uh obviously we lost all the gigs we're doing and all the rest of it but mm. i still had that as a bit of a lifeline i was like oh thank god i've got a truck driving license so mm. i was asked to do loads of work so i did that but about a week and a half ago that the bottom fell out of that so mm. it um so there's none of that going around either at the moment so yeah. well going back to obviously what this podcast is about is you know, it, it's about staying alive and basically staying afloat and, and how how different musicians, you know, survive through through a lifetime of doing gigs. And then because it because like you said, some sometimes the bottom could just fall up like a tour could be cancelled or, or whatever. And obviously yeah. you just meant you just mentioned that. I mean, to me, it's I was don't take this the wrong way, but I always feel it's like sacrilege you driving the truck because you're honestly one of the best bass players I've ever met. You you know, I think you're oh. brilliant um but obviously i guess i guess it takes the pressure of you having to hustle for gigs and and if it works for you it works for you you know and you pick and well, choose your gigs and to be honest it's not something i want to do it, it was um it was more a necessity because i've got i've got a wife and two kids 
Mm. And, and when the kids came along, it, it was really a case of you've got to always be bringing some money in. And mm. so, for example, when you know I spoke to you before about it, when I've had I've had tours booked with with Robin Gibb, which would have been a great earner. Mm. It's got it's got cancelled at the last minute. So mm. then we're the first time that happened, um, I'd had the whole uh, week. Well, it kind of as soon as I got that gig, I thought, oh, this is my job now. This is this is it, you know. Mm. Um, and and so I didn't work. I just sat around practicing, waiting, and then the gigs would come in. I'd go and do the gigs. And then the first time we had a lot of gigs booked and it didn't come off, and I'd not been to work for a good couple of weeks. I'd just been at home practicing. Mm. Uh, we were suddenly there going, ah, now we've got no income. Yeah. Uh, what do we do? And I, and so I remember then going, oh, I've really got to get a job again. So so I called a friend of my dad's who, who'd got a van driving thing. He said, oh, you can drive on my van for us for a bit. And he just said to me, he said, if you get your, if you get your lorry driving license, your, your class two it was at the time, he said, I can give you more work. Um, then you can just jump in and out whenever something if anything goes wrong you always got the fallback so so i did that and then because i got my class two i got my class one as well and uh it's it served as a, a you know a, a, i've needed it so many times over the years when when you've you know you've got you've got gigs where stuff gets cancelled or mm. or you may have you may have five weeks of touring and then you've got nothing again for another three months mm. and in the meantime you know i've always been trying to push my own stuff and that's that's and we do you know i've got to deal with a band in germany at the moment but um it, especially these days it doesn't bring in a lot of money and, yeah and when, when we tour we're more or less paying for it ourselves mm. so so that's just the way the world is unless you're lucky enough to be ed sheeran or elton john i think this is the way you have you have to do it and just accept it but um yeah definitely and it's always the same story i you know i've obviously i've had these conversations with with Earl slick a lot as well because i've been on the road with him and exactly the same you know and you think at his level he'd be earning enough money for it to it to be fine but he said even when he was playing with bowie you know suddenly it's like oh you just wouldn't get called for the next tour and then then what do you do you know this so it's, it's the same same for everyone i guess unless it's unless unless you're the artist and you're you know that big name artist the rest of us mm. sidemen in in sidemen gigs i've had like that it's a very precarious way mm. you know a friend of mine played drums for robin for seven years and then just on one particular gig they just did decided not to call him and they, they called another drummer mm. and uh he, he assumed he was going on tour and no one had called him to say you weren't mm. they just they just didn't send him the details i mean and that's to be honest most of the management i've ever worked with that's that's what you get you don't mm. get a, sorry thanks for all your service you've done great and but we're going to use somebody else you just you just don't you know the phone doesn't ring that's that mm. you know yeah well let's backtrack and talk about that anyway so how how did this sort of metalhead get involved with 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 robin gibb in the first place well to go back a bit um so after after the sabbath thing happened uh i then that, that didn't actually last that long about a year and then myself and andy decided to form another band after that and we we, we did that for about four years that was called godsend um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of we got a deal but it wasn't as, as successful as sabbath we were trying to be more uh kind of uh it was the grunge period at that point so we were kind of jumping into that a bit mm. 
starting to be a bit sound garden and all this kind of thing but we're kind of missing the boat a bit as well um and then my mum died in 94 and uh uh at that point we the the band with andy again the second band split up and uh, myself and my wife well my girlfriend as she was at that time just said you know let's let's go away and i wanted to go to la and do one of them la school things you know mm. like what pete thorne does now all that shredding kind of stuff but, yeah but that was so hard to get into and and uh needed a lot of money and all this so we ended up going to australia on a work visa because you could get a work visa there so i went to australia did a year there of backpacking and whatever and and actually landed a job at their base institute in sydney and taught there for a while cool but, um and that was great because because uh, i met uh, again another one of the teachers was a great jazz player and i started to get into that then because it because it does actually relate to every piece of music it's uh you know it's it's kind of taking it as far as it can go i, I think theory wise yeah but but it's great and and as as for a bass player learning that stuff really does relate to any kind of music so it's it's uh you know that, that was a good thing for me but it's uh, like you were saying before about you know having that in your armory and then you don't have to do all these weird scales and things all the time but if you know how to do it it's always there isn't it yeah and, and you know what even all that the flashy stuff aside it's more when you listen to a jazz a jazz walking bass line and it's it's taking you on a little journey and leading you to where the song's going to go a little approach to the next mm. thing and i found that so useful in pop pop music let's call rock pop music mm-hmm. uh, because you, you can do the same thing you just that little lead in note and whatever that the rest of the band aren't doing just links it all together and and makes i think it makes you sound like yeah you're a proper bass player you know what you're doing you you're doing that thing. and it's so subtle it's not that you're flying around the fretboard and you know i got more into that as i got older than i did trying to be billy sheehan if you know what i mean yeah i then started to realize what really good uh, i mean billy's a great bass player but really um what a, a traditional bass player in a role and then making the song really work and yeah totally. you, you, get, you get more gigs through that and it's uh you know it's that's that old thing that we've always heard you know the same totally. with drummers you know you, you may be able to do all the the licks and the rudiments but you've got to be able to go one two three four and keep everybody dancing otherwise you ain't got a gig definitely definitely and there's nothing worse than a bass player just soloing the whole gig no (laughs) no and i I was guilty of that when i was 18 19 definitely (laughs) (laughs) unless you're unless you're john entwistle i suppose (laughs) but but, i mean even him if you actually listen to majority of his bass lines are just bass lines when we Mm. were we were together learning the uh what we did who are we didn't we this year on the classic who are you yeah yeah um that's quite a, a, just a standard simple baseline most of the yeah. time it's the odd yeah yeah definitely you can tell he's got it there if he wants it but mostly it's just solid and he's laying it down yeah they're just genius baselines aren't they so, and and the yeah. way townsend played he was sort of like a rhythm player with a bit of lead added in wasn't he and um I just, I think, just won't get fooled again. It's just a genius bit of bass playing, isn't it? It's just, it just gives yeah. that chorus such a lift. That do 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 do, you know, exactly, all that yeah. stuff. And, and, that, and uh, yeah, not very hard to play, but it's, but it's great. And you think, oh, yeah, sort of thought of that. It's so, it's a hook, you know. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a massive Beatles head as well. And I was listening to. Um, 
I was listening to Here Comes the Sun in the car uh, yesterday. Um, we just went for a little drive because we've been stuck in a house, obviously, for the last month. And, um, and I was just listening. I mean, that, that whole song's brilliant. But if you just listen to Ringo's drums on that, they're just yeah. like... He just always did the right thing at the right time. It's like, you know, it's just so clever. And, yeah, and, exactly. And, um, and I think all it's the same with all. Exactly, all for the song. And um, I think that's what made all those guys amazing. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're asking me about Robin Gibbs. So anyway, yeah. going back to my quick life story. <laughs> yeah. Funny <laughs> Corbett show this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> When I got back from Australia, I I, I went to have lessons again because uh, I'd been teaching out there. I was well into it by then. I, I, I went back and I saw a, an old teacher of mine, Rob Burns, who was a session player who famously played the bass solo at the end of Black, Blackadder on Blackadder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he played with Gilmore and quite a few people. And I, I went to see him in London and... Um, and he said, uh, he said, well, instead of me giving you private lessons again, he said, I now run a college that's affiliated to Thames Valley University and you can get a music degree mm. and do it that way. So, so I did. I went and I, I moved to, this is before we had kids. So I moved to London in 98 and I spent four years there. I got my music degree. Um, I ended up working with Mickey Most on an album, uh, which was great. It was like a three-month contract. Awesome. Um, and and we were working with a producer called Dave Anderson, I think his name was, and he'd worked with the Big Sir and quite a few other people. And that was real um, kind of Jeff Buckley style music. Cool. Um, Sounds great. And, oh, and it was it was um, it was so good for my learning. Again, again, I remember one song. He just said, "Right, you're going to play this song, and you can only play root and fifth all the way through. I don't want you to play any fills or anything melodic. Just root and fifth all the way through." It says, uh, and then at the very end, at the very like last few bars, I did put something in, and he went, "Yeah, okay, I'll let you have that." And, <laughs> and, and, it, and it stood out because I'd not done anything all the rest of the song, and it, things like that. It was just learning curves of how you should play in lots, lots of different styles of music. It was, it was mm. great. Um, yeah, and then uh, I, I was going to stay in London, uh, but myself and my girlfriend at the time. We, uh, uh, she got pregnant and she was like, right, you've got to come back to Nottingham because I'm not moving to London now. I'm going to be a mum and I want to be near, near my mum. So then I was like, oh, you know, thought that was the end of the world, leaving London, <laughs> that end of career. So I came back, uh, obviously, um, when our daughter was uh, born and uh, I went to see Andy Sneap again just to say, hello, I'm back in town. How are you going? And literally the very next day, he said, oh, I've just had a band call me and they need they need a bass player. Uh, but you, you're going out on tour for three months. I was like, yeah, OK. So I did that. I did a European tour for three months. And it turns out that band was Messiah's Kiss, which which I'm still in, actually. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, the, the tour manager of that was was Robin Gibbs' tour manager. Right. So straight after that. So that was weird because I was playing, you know, really traditional maiden priest style kind of heavy metal again, yeah. uh, which I hadn't done for years, actually, at that point. I'd, I'd really left that behind. And uh, anyway, he said to me, uh, he, he was like, oh, I want you to come and play for Robin Gibbs. So then literally the week after that, I was in Madrid playing a live TV show with Robin Gibbs on a, on a semi-acoustic bass. Thinking, wow. 
Well, this is a bit weird. And that, that was nerve-wracking. That was live telly, straight in. Yeah, so, I bet. You know, no <laughs> so, how, so how did you, did you have to audition for him or how, how, did, how did it yeah, all work? Never done, I've never done an audition in my life. All right. Just, so just, you just, in, just recommended and then next thing you know, it's like you're rehearsing. Yeah, I, I've never got around to actually making my own website or anything like that. I've <laughs> thought about it for years, but every, t- every time I ever thought about it, I was so lucky. I'd always got, too much on to actually do it yeah so I, I was like oh you know i would do that but i've got a gig tonight and i've got i'm going here or i'm flying there and whatever mm. so i was with robin for nearly 10 years just shy of 10 years before unfortunately he died um, yeah yeah which was a great gig because we got to play everywhere you know all it was over. a big part of your life then if you were with him that long yeah yeah and did you how was it playing that music? Had you done that type of music up to, up to that point, or? Well, because I'd gone and done the the degree in London. Yeah. We were, we were and it was a performance degree. We were playing all kinds of music, and mm. I'm quite competitive anyway. So I wanted to try and be the best at everything. So so we'd go we'd do a we'd do a disco kind of time you know um, uh, project, and then we'd do a. You know, a rock project and a fusion project and a jazz project. I just wanted to be the best at everything. It was very competitive mm-hmm. type of school, so um, so I just threw myself into all kinds of music. So when Robin came along, I was like, "Wow, I actually quite like this stuff." You know, so yeah. Well, and, they're just brilliant songs, aren't they? Especially some of their older stuff, like um, um, "To Love Somebody" and uh, yeah, Massachusetts and stuff, stuff like that. And um, I really love all those you know the, the kind of 60s stuff as well that was great so it wasn't all just disco but, uh, yeah no, totally have you got have you got a favorite gig or fondest memory of playing from that time oh, well yeah i've told you about the <laughs> the uh, the val kilmer moment i'm gonna <laughs> i think so remind me so yeah we were doing a unicef gig in in germany and it was in a big hotel and uh uh, because I was just the new guy and the and the bass player. Really. Well, we do, actually didn't have a drummer at the time. We just had me playing bass, an acoustic guitarist, and two backing singers. We we did the for the first year we did it uh, just like that. Uh, right. You know. Um. So again, it was quite nerve wracking because you're out there. It's nice having a drummer there because you're kind of part of a team and you know you're never on sure. your own. But when you yeah. when you just you know you're definitely on your own when you, you you're just doing it with an acoustic guitarist and uh yeah anyway um we, we got to the hotel and we were all staying at another another hotel and the gig was on in this other big hotel well when we got there they'd overbooked the room so i had to stay in the actual hotel that the gig was was on on my own oh, the rest of the band and the what, management what a shame Where else? yeah brilliant. <laughs> i was like bonus and then that was a, so the air begins of what a very weird night We'd just done another album with Messiah's Kiss, who again was the same tour manager as Robin Gibb had. Yeah. Actually, he was like the band's real manager for Messiah's Kiss. And uh, they needed to do a photo session for the album. And I was at this hotel about to go on stage with, well, there was a couple of hours to go and I was just hanging around there. So they said, right, we're going to drive down. And uh, uh, the drummer of this band is about six foot five. Huge. And they're all big German lads. So, yeah. so I had no heavy metal gear with me. I just had a, a pair of jeans and a black T-shirt and was about to go on stage with Robin. Uh, but they wanted me to look uh, 
metal. <laughs> right. So they came down. They, they parked opposite the hotel. I came out of the hotel. They, they undid the boot of their car, and I had to put on these leather trousers, which were for a six-foot-five rather big German and not me. <laughs> he then put on these big winkle picker kind of rock boots and i was going oh, i'm not wearing them they're going yeah yeah come on because we've got to do this photo session so um so we literally did the photo session opposite the hotel before i was going on to this big unicef gig and and i've got all their clothes on and and they're all three times to three sizes too big for me so we have this quick photo session anyway and i'm literally getting changed trousers down outside opposite the hotel a, a, a <laughs> of a car like like you go to an amateur football match you know that kind of thing yeah <laughs> and uh, anyway straight back into the hotel and i thought right i want to go to our dressing room and just do a bit of practice because i was really nervous and i'd got a i got me semi-acoustic bass here i tried to get in into our our dressing room and as i opened the door there's val kilmer lying on the floor doing sit-ups <laughs> with, the, with his manager who looked like something out of the good fellows with a big white scarf <laughs> and a big kind of grey suit and he's going hey guy can you just leave us a moment and I'm like Batman's on the floor what's going on here <laughs> I was like uh, okay okay so so I came Bizarre. out I came out and um, it was uh, so I phoned my wife up and I was going you never guess who's on who's on my dressing room floor it's Val Kilmer <laughs> she's going no way you know blah 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 anyway yeah about an hour later, I decided to go back because um, I was getting nervous at this point and I think Robin was coming in, in in another hour. So I wanted to keep running through the songs and make sure I knew them. Mm-hmm. So so I got back, I went back to the the uh, uh, the, the um, dressing room and he's still there and he's re- he's doing the speech. So he's, recite- he's reciting his speech and all this kind of thing. Uh, and and they're going, oh, can you just give us 10 minutes more? And at this point, I was so nervous. I was like, no, you've got to go now because I've got to practice these songs. I'm sorry. I don't really care who you are. <laughs> you've got to go. <laughs> so uh, technically, I kicked Val Kilmer out of the dressing room. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's amazing. Fuck you, Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah. No, no way, Kilmer. Get, get lost. <laughs> go play bass. <laughs> yeah. That's that's amazing, man. And what kind of gigs were you were you doing? Obviously, you mentioned TV shows, but was it was it all kind of big festivals and that sort of thing with with Robin? I tell you what, it was a great it was a great artist to work for because because of who he was, you'd get to do the gigs that no one ever gets to do. So once we played on the end of a uh, tennis court with Steffi Graf and Gabrielle Sabatini playing a tennis match. <laughs> We're on the end of the stage with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra doing a live TV show thing, wow. playing, playing. I think we were playing, uh, yeah, not staying alive. What's the other one? He always used to uh, Saturday Night Fever or something like that. Anyway, right. we're, we're doing that while they're playing tennis. You know, in a just bizarre. You know, yeah, to do those. It, it's incredible where where you end up sometimes, isn't it? In yeah. this in this business, I was saying. Um, I did a little uh, kind of, I guess, it masterclass in um, ICMP. I saw in that Kil- yeah. in Kilburn, yeah, a, f- a few weeks Great. ago. And I was chatting to the guys there, and I was just saying, you know, literally, if you've got any questions about touring, just just ask because I've done. And I was thinking about it. I was like, I've been in a car, in a van, in the back of a lorry, in a private jet, yeah. you know, and like it's and it's just bizarre. You end up, you know, 
in in these random like you know random flats in moscow or wherever you know places you yeah. never normally get to go you know and um i think we've got a musicians have a kind of unique insight into the world because you i always find you get kind of thrust into these situations where i guess the people that have paid for the the performance or the artist are there yeah. so so subsequently this this penniless musician from reading or nottingham in your exactly, case is just yeah. surrounded by millionaires you you live that lifestyle for a minute don't you <laughs> oh yeah I, I i met uh vladimir putin twice i played the kremlin twice and literally i remember playing it and then two days later i was driving a truck around nottingham going yeah <laughs> what's in the kremlin two days ago what's going on <laughs> yeah Oh, the Kremlin's interesting place, isn't it? I, that's the I think that's the coldest I've ever been. Actually, oh yeah, walk yeah. around the Kremlin. I went there in January, and um, we, we were, were doing, in uh, winter. Yeah, yeah. The, the, river, the river was frozen when we were there. Yeah, I, I I specifically I'm not a hairy person in general, but I specifically remember my leg hairs poking through my jeans because I was so <laughs> cold. <laughs> yeah. Your body so, growing it as you walk around. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I could I could write a book about the gigs we did with Robin. Just uh, that, I mean, the Demis Roustos one was a classic. It was some millionaire who uh, in Greece who wanted Demis Roustos to play there, and uh, and I was I think I was the only person who knew who, who he was. As we as we're coming through the airport, I'm seeing this guy and I'm going. He was in a wheelchair at the time, actually, shortly before he died, and um, uh, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking that's Demis Roustos. That is, I'm sure it is. And we didn't. No one said anything. And then we got to the gig, and, and the gig was a was was literally uh, a swimming pool full of sharks, proper James, <laughs> proper James Bond. With the, sta <laughs> the stage kind of that that was where the dance floor was, and the stage kind of went up. And then if you looked at the back of the stage, if you decided to jump off the back of the stage, you were you were going like three hundred foot down a cliff into the sea. Wow. Amazing, and um. Uh, and it wasn't until we'd finished playing that when we came off stage, Demis was there and he'd watched the whole show. And he, he asked me to do his album, which was great. Uh, but I never actually got to do it because our manager got involved and money got involved and that was that, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the, I guess the business side of things always um, always sort of affects it, doesn't it? I, I remember you telling me before about, I don't know how much you can say on a podcast, but obviously how it certain things where they tried to make you pay for breakfast and stuff because you're in a posh hotel and oh yeah, yeah. and things like that and ma management always seems to get in the way of things of because of, uh, yeah. like, like like we were just saying about kind of living that lifestyle and you're thrust into these sort of five-star hotels where you might be traveling first class or whatever you know and then getting but, paid but, <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. but the, your your wages are you know don't don't sort of line up with that do they no, like i told you the breakfast of that particular hotel when they decided to try and charge us we'd done we'd done three nights in hong kong back to back and so we've been staying in this five-star hotel all week and then the management decided that we're going to try and charge us for breakfast which had never happened before that's a yeah. kind of you know it is it's a kind of done deal in music terms you know yeah you get, you get breakfast don't you and then a bit usually and yeah. sometimes catering if you're abroad or yeah, and and obviously with that gig, you were supposed to get all mod cons, really, mm. other, other than, you know. And, uh, yeah, and then, so the management went, oh, everyone's got... And, and it worked out, it was more than we were getting for the three, you know, for the for that little bit of the tour. It was like, well, 
we're not making any money now because it's a five-star hotel. The breakfast was that much. Oh, it was it was ridiculous. You know, it's the most expensive place in Hong Kong, and we've been having a breakfast there every day. Well, it, it was more than the fee that we were getting paid. <laughs> I'm not joking. It was ridiculous. So what happened? So what happened in the end? I've, I refused to pay it. I refused to pay it. And then by the time, then we flew from there to Tokyo to play. And I was really, uh, everybody was refusing to play. But then uh, when the management came in and they were going again, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to sort this out. Um, all the people who were backing me up just seemed to disappear. <laughs> and um, I was left on my own. And uh, I had a big row with the management. I said, look, I said, uh, they were like, well, you either pay this or you can look for another gig. And I said, okay, then go and get another bass player now. Then we're you going called, on. You called that bluff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, then well, the funny thing is, is Robin didn't know anything about it. He got wind of it, came in mm. and kind of tore a strip off all the managers and we were all sitting pretty. So it was quite, oh, right. great. He obviously liked you then, you know, you were with him for a long time, weren't you? And he obviously loved, loved having you around and stuff. Oh, well, I, I, I've got, I got on really well with him. At first, it, it, we were kind of kept away from him a bit, but as as you know, as the years went by, um, I was a regular, obviously, and and we had quite a few people go and and replace. So I was quite pleased that I'd, I'd still kept my job, and uh, and so because I was a familiar face, I think we got closer and did you know, and we, we'd had a few adventures along the way. We did a live radio show once. And um, it was, there was a hundred people studio audience, and again, there's yeah. no there's no drummer, and I, I was flown in to be the MD of that one actually. So we had a different keyboardist and a different guitarist. So I spent the day showing them how we rearranged the songs slightly, and we went on to do it. And it, uh, it was live, so you really kind of you're nervous, but you're concentrating like you wouldn't believe. You know, yeah. you're constantly saying to yourself, "I can do this. I'm good. I can do this. It's all yeah. <laughs> simple you've done it a million times and so i'm just doing to love somebody and there's a little there's a little easy bass thing at the start that goes so i'm doing doing this lick and it's going great and i'm looking at my bass and i just literally just lift my eyes up and robin's right in front of me his face is literally nose nose to nose and he's going what's the first line what's the first line what's the first line <laughs> he's coming in in a minute and i'm i'm kind of can't speak to him properly because i'm concentrating and I'm going, yeah. uh, life, line, life, line. And he goes, and he just looks at me. And perfectly on time, he turns around to the audience and goes, there's a light, like this. And yeah, then turns, yeah. And turns around to me and winks and points. And goes, I was like, whew. Oh, <laughs> so man, there's, no, like, there's nothing scarier as a, as a singer when you can't remember the first line of a song. It's happened to me so many times, even on the tour we just did. Like, you have, like, this sort of 15-second, like, soul destroying panic and then oh, for, and then some reason you just you just you start this you know literally half a second before you're about to sing it just comes into your brain it's so weird well it's i, so I had it on that last tour i was singing a couple of songs and on, on the one that we filmed in liverpool and i'd and i'd done lagrange perfectly every single time worked <laughs> all right the one we filmed it came to the second line and i couldn't remember it so i just said the first line again you know, oh, did you? Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I was like, oh god, it's just your your brain just clips, doesn't it? And you know, how many times have we done it? You know. Well, there's <laughs> but, yeah. there's something that there's something. As soon as they press that record button, it's just different, isn't it? 
for, for some reason i don't know why some people are just brilliant at it but some people just don't record very well do they i i guess if they if they hadn't have told us there was 30 cameras in the room maybe we would have just done a normal gig exactly, yeah. <laughs> in, fact, in fact the night before when we were in london was a brilliant gig it was one of my favorite ones of that tour and, yeah uh, Oh, why don't you film that? We were on fire. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we just talk a little bit about it? Because obviously some people might not know what the classic rock show is or whatever. So ha- yeah. firstly, that, that's obviously where we met and we're in the band together and um, hopefully going to be touring again in, in January, February next year. Um, you've, you're probably the longest serving member in it now, or one of them anyway. So how, how did you get involved in it? In yeah, it's, it's me, me and Carl, actually. Uh, the yeah. longest ones now um and james of course because he's yeah his show um i got involved with the previous gu- guitarist howie again that actually it's funny how these things happen that stems from the the gib thing mm. so um so i was doing the gib thing and we ended up touring australia with with uh bonnie tyler's band and uh the guitarist out of that matt i got to know him quite a few times because we we all seem to be doing a TV show or something, and but it's always Robin Gibb and it's always Bonnie Tyler. So you you get to know their band, and so over the years, over a ten year period, we bumped into into each other so many times. It's and, weird um, that happens, isn't it? I remember yeah. doing when I when I was doing the Gutter Dameron tour. For some reason, and it's because that was a heavy metal project, but for some reason, we were always on the same um, the same bill as Jake Bug. And yeah. <laughs> I used to, I used to always see Jake Bug in catering, and it was getting to the point where it's just a bit awkward. Yeah. And so, so in in the end, we we sort of um, I introduced myself and made friends with this drummer Jack, and and then we we sort of ended up having a beer at the last gig of the tour, and we, yeah. it was I want to say about five or six things. And he, he was a lovely bloke, actually, Jake Bug. I think he's a bit misunderstood, but he's quite self-deprecating, and he's a lovely little lad, actually. Anyway, sorry, mate, carry on. (laughs) He's a local lad to us. He's a local to here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, he's great. He's a great songwriter, man. Yeah, yeah, he is. I've never actually met him, but a lot of people I know know him and have met him, and he rehearses, used to rehearse at a friend of mine's place down the road. Mm. So, uh, anyway, we digress. Uh, What are we talking about? Uh, Oh, yeah, so what happened is, um, the guy from Bonnie Tyler's band, he he knew another bass player who knew a singer who needed a bass player, and, he, and that turned out to be Carl Sentence, who now sings for Nazareth. And he was doing yes, the classic, yeah. he was doing the classic rock show at the time. So uh, and Howie was in his original band. So I got recommended through the Bonnie Tyler guy to get for this gig with Carl, and it turns out he was he was only in uh, Leicester, so he was pretty local to me. So I ended up in a band with those guys and they were doing the classic rock show already. And so they, after about a year, they asked me if they, if I'd do that as well. So mm. and now, and now I'm still here and they both left. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, he's a, such a cool singer, Carl. It's a, it's a shame. Like, um, it's a shame for me because there's so many, it's not many gigs where two lead singers get to work together really. And, yeah. Uh, when I was doing the Thriller thing, and obviously I never did it with Ricardo, and I know Ricardo was in the classic rock show before me, and yeah. um, I'm, I'm big fans of all these guys, and I never get to work with them. So, so obviously, you know, me and Rudy are working really well together. I think this lineup's great. So, yeah. but, um, but so, so for someone who's never seen the classic rock show, how would you describe it to them? It's um, well, it, obviously it's a covers band, but we're playing big theatres to to pretty decent audiences um 
and the, the 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 old concept is to try and make what we're doing as close to the original as possible. So the guitarists are so uh, you know the fine details of every you've got to play the the, the correct guitar for the correct song. Um, um, so all the bits are it, it's really it's taken to the to a degree I've never known to try and replicate what what the original song was. So it's it's like a live jukebox for people who are into that kind of music. Yeah, it's good fun, and you and you take your top off every night. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent most of my early youth with a, with without a top on, which actually goes back to the beginning. That's where that was the Sid Vicious thing, you see. So that's where that started. Yeah, so, you know. I bet you didn't well, do that with Gib. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So that's what the, the classic rock show does, really. It's uh, it's that kind of but it's great fun it's great great fun to do and um yeah it, it. that's it is yeah. <laughs> is a random question that um i'm gonna i'm gonna try and ask everybody I is <laughs> you liar i've seen it i think i've seen it um I'm glad you the, are. The, the question the question is uh do you think you made it uh inexperiences yes financially <laughs> no <laughs> that's a great answer yeah and uh and do you think liverpool are ever going to win the premier league it's cursed isn't it it seems to be cursed it took a global pandemic didn't it to stop them yeah yeah because you, you're so you, you're a liverpool fan aren't you but I obviously been, you grew, you I grew up been, in nottingham I was seven years old yeah yeah so well, you're not, you're not a Forest fan, are you? Well, the, the story there is my dad's originally from Grimsby, so he 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 moved to Nottingham when he was, I don't know, about twelve years old, something like that. Um, and he was he's a complete football head, my dad is, and uh, he started working for County and Forest as a program seller, and, and eventually got on County's books. But he always wanted to support County because they wore the same kit as Grimsby, and he lived. Right literally across the road from the from the ground so because he was a staunch Notts County fan I was I could never be a Forest fan it just wasn't allowed right. so uh, so then you're growing up and there's Notts County never on the TV they're usually languishing in the fourth division or what it was at that time so and then the only team who's on is Liverpool and my dad quite liked them because they were, they were a good team at the time and they also had the England captain Kevin Keegan in the in the side, mm. and and I and it all started because I got his card in a shredded wheat packet. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Keegan wearing an England kit, and my dad, and my dad was a big England fan. He was like, "Oh yeah, that's Kevin Keegan's brilliant place for Liverpool. They're on telly today." So I watched them, and they were, I think they beat Tottenham seven 0 I was like, right, "I'm a Liverpool fan now. That's it." <laughs> <laughs> if only it had gone the other way, you'd have had a lifetime of anguish as a Spurs fan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what? I think football's the thing I miss most about this uh, this quarantine. Really yeah. miss just putting the telly on and watching the football and playing football as well. Do you know, I got some new football boots uh, for my birthday the other day, and I haven't been able to wear them yet, and it's breaking my heart actually. Yeah, I know. I mean, even um, I do a lot of work with a with a with a, a wedding function band. You know, how the mighty have fallen. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, but the the great thing about that band is is that we all we all we all take a football and we're usually out out around the back of some 
uh, big marquee having a kickabout and we'd you know, having a kick around yeah that's a great <laughs> idea and uh, just stick a football in the car <laughs> uh, I've always got one in my boot mate definitely I'm going to let you decide either to pick a super group or a five-a-side football team so you can either pick your dream band or your dream five-a-side football team that you can be in one or one or the other and I guess, I guess if you want, you could have musicians in the five-a-side team and you could have footballers in the super group. That's up to you. But I want you to pick a, so either a five-a-side football team or a band that you could be in. Who would be in it? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I'd like to be in Crowded House. <laughs> Just Crowded House. That would be your super group. Yeah, because, because <laughs> it, it is my thinking on this. I, absolutely, I absolutely love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But yeah. I would never want to replace Flea, even if I could do what he does. Yeah. Because he's such an integral part of the band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, they're sacred. One of my favourite bands. And they're they're sacred because you've got him and John Frusciante and the other guys. And and it's got to be those four. Mm. So I wouldn't want to... I want to be in that band, but I wouldn't want to replace anybody because they're one of my favourite bands, if you know what I mean. Yeah. All the way down to Crowded House. Now, nothing against the bass player in Crowded House. He's a great (laughs) bass player. (laughs) <laughs> but but it, it's uh, I think I could get in there he's not as high profile as say Flea is in their band mm. so I'll probably you know just, just play with uh, Neil Finn that'd be great yeah you know. he's, Neil, after, he's after your job yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe, a, maybe a super group I would, I'd like to play with Neil Finn Eddie Vedder me and uh, oh just put Carl Penny on drums. I'll be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he'd be happy with that as well. I was watching that um, the One World One Global Citizen concert last night. Did you see that? No, I think we're going to watch it tonight. I think my wife yeah, it. yeah. There's some there's some taped interesting. It. That's a, our older mom. Taped it. <laughs> <laughs> She's taped it from the live stream. Uh, yeah, there was there was some interesting moments to say the least. Paul McCartney, but obviously he's my, you know, Paul McCartney's my hero. I'm not going to say a bad word about him, but he did I a sort of slow. Brushed his slight... shoulder once. You know. Did you? Brushed shoulder, yeah. I got invited. Um, a friend of mine, he, he did a premiere of an album he was doing when I was when I was living in London at, at Leicester Square, and uh, we got in with all the Sun readers. Somebody knew some. Somebody did. You know, there's Sun reader competitions that they get, kind of mm. thing. Anyway, and uh, you could go uh, and and be there to his premiere so I ended up at the premiere of his album and uh, he literally walked past me and, and brushed me uh, brushed my shoulder I was like get out of the way Paul <laughs> <laughs> you would kill me get, get lost <laughs> there's that brilliant uh, I think it must be on YouTube but I think it's after it's either the Oscars or the Grammys or something in the States and there, there's this sort of real VIP after show party and there's Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters and Paul McCartney and the bouncers not letting him in to this VIP party. Brilliant. And ta- Taylor Hawkins is going, he's Paul McCartney. He's going, I'm sorry, he's not on the, he's not on the list. He's like, how VIP does this have to be? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, it's brilliant. And so, so yeah, um, Paul McCartney was on. They did like a sort of quite strange version of Lady Madonna. I thought Elton John... Elton John sounded better as well, to be honest. He did like a a version of I'm Still Standing. Um, and then... I've got so know, many rock and roll stories. I've got an Elton John story. To go on, go on. There's no yeah. reason you can't tell it. Never met him, right? But I've been to yeah. his house about four or five times. Right. 
because I was the truck driver that took all the stuff in for his um, what's his called it sequins and gowns party or something I can't remember. He has a big charity party with his big marquee. I mean, right. this, mar- this marquee is not a marquee, mate. It's like a village. Right, <laughs> and 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 you have to you you have to drive a truck down his driveway, and then you have to be really careful not to knock over his statue because you literally have to go in his right past his house. What's right. it of the statue? Is it him? No, it's he, he, like you know one of them really kind of um, uh, proper formal English houses where they've got uh, a waterfall with some kind of cherub sp- right. sp- spitting water, kind of some mm-hmm. something like that, as I remember, and. Uh, and a real, you know, that that kind of Georgian kind of manor house type look. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, you've got to drive in between this on the gravel, try not to knock anything, right? Which was art in the mouth every time I did it. And then out of that, and they've got this this track, and it goes past this donkey castle. The bloke's got a castle, a cardboard castle. Well, kind of, yeah, cardboard wooden castle with donkeys in it. And I'm not right. there. Right, and you go past his donkey castle, and then you deliver. Oh, I was working for a lighting company when I was when I was a student, mm-hmm. and uh, you deliver all the lights to his place and this that, and the other. So, and lit- and then from the top of his his uh, his garden, you you look straight into Windsor Castle. All it's right, like this big vista into Windsor Castle. So uh, yeah, that's my Elton John house story. <laughs> you should you should have just hid in one of the bushes and gone to the party. Yeah, I know. Um, I, you know. I suppose you, I suppose you couldn't have hidden the truck though. That would have been a bit hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Eddie Vedder was on that thing last night as well, and he he I was wouldn't. sort of in he was sort of in funeral mode. He was sort of playing a song I didn't know actually on like a church organ. And wow. uh, but anyway, you'll you'll see. It's it's still cool. I'd still rather watch Eddie Vedder playing a church organ than the most stuff. But, I mean. Um, I could tell you all these stories. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah, I met, I met. We were doing a gig in Argentina with Robin, and we we met him because he was at the same hotel. And we uh, such such a lovely bunch of blokes, really nice. Although the the bouncers did try and kill us as we went over to say hello. But did they? Luckily, yeah, luckily uh, all the management people got involved, and then and then we uh, we all ended up talking, and they were great, really down to earth, and you know Eddie was a lovely bloke. He was just. Uh, of just going around trying to in- introduce you to everybody you know. Yeah. Oh, that's but so cool. Really, really nice, humble bloke. You know, it's good. Well, that's good to know. He, everyone calls him Uncle Eddie, don't they? I think he. I think he. Yeah. yeah, he always seems like a great bloke. I guess. I guess as well. Like you know, these people have a lifetime of of being uh, a super famous person. You know, and it depends when you catch them, doesn't it? Like, yeah, I'm sure I've told you my Jimmy my Jimmy Page story before, where I met Jimmy Page on the train and. He was just such a gentleman, and he sat with me and my friend Ashby uh, on the train from Reading, where we bumped into him all the way to all the way to London. And he he had so much time for us, and he sat in normal class. It was sort of pretty empty train, just sat yeah. opposite us, just chatting about Led Zeppelin and blues and all this stuff. And you know, I've heard people say things about Jimmy Page in the past, like, oh, you know, he's he's this and he's that. But you know, if you go up to him at a gig where there's thousands yeah. of people there trying to you know, it's, it's a different scenario, isn't it? But yeah. it's nice. It's nice to meet people because I've been lucky. Obviously, ten years with Robin, I met bloody everybody. But, mm. uh, it, and most of them, I'd say, there is a few people I would say are are, are what their reputation says they are. But Go on, most... spill the beans, Wayne. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
No. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, but most people are really nice because I think you're introduced then as a as a as someone who does the same job. You know, you're on the you're not. Yeah, on oh, definitely, definitely. Level, you know. Yeah. And then then they 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 seem to probably give you more the time of day as they would. You know, I'm assuming. Yeah, if you if you go up and ask for a selfie. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I've ever really been in that situation, so uh, you know, anyone can have a selfie with me. I'm not bothered. <laughs> <laughs> you want to start selling them, mate? You might have to if if this uh, yeah, quarantine right. lasts forever. You might have to start selling a topless uh, sort of A5 <laughs> little leaflet. So what's next, you, mate? Uh, after this I'll quarantine, tell you what, I've never I've never practiced so much. It's been great for that. I really mm. enjoy. Because every day I'll do I'll do a workout in the morning, and my daughters are here, and we'll do we'll do we we'll do that together, and then uh, obviously a few chores that that the, her indoors has got set up for me. And, uh, <laughs> but usually I've, I'm I'm lucky. I built my own little studio a few years ago, and um, I'm just in here, and I've I've got a practice routine of I'm going through. I've got a couple of courses I've I've, I've bought recently, and I'm going through them. And I'm learning the double bass as well, so that's nice. And I'm doing a bit of writing, so it's uh, I'm, re- I'm quite enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Not not to be glib about all the people who are obviously suffering at the time, you know. Mm. Obviously. Yeah, definitely. Well, th- you know, there's pros and cons to everything, isn't there? So it's obviously nice to nice to spend time with your family and and all that stuff, and and uh, like you say, get practice. I, I've been in my studio quite a bit as well, and it's I've been doing some remote sessions and the online gigs I've been doing have been great actually. I know you've oh they watched, have been great. Watched some of them, but it's just been so lovely because you sort of you don't realise how over the years you've you've picked up um, a following, you know, and people that genuinely love what you do, and you know they don't always get the chance to come out and see your gigs. You yeah, know? you're you're so um, good at well, mate. I really have to say, I could I could. There were a couple of people saying, "Oh, why, Wayne, why don't you do that?" And I was like, "I can't do that. There's no way." You know, I, yeah. could, sing, I could sing my own songs and maybe the odd song that um, I've rehearsed and this, that, and the other that's in my range. But to, you know, the people are firing songs at you all the time. And yeah, if I was if I was in a band as a bass player, then I could do it. But who just wants to see me just sitting there playing? Play as this bass line, Wayne. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'd, <laughs> I'm not going to do that, are they? I'd watch it. Most <laughs> boring uh, guy I'd... ever. Well, thank you, mate. I'm I'm just a blago. I just uh, I've just learned ah. over the years to to blag my way through stuff. But so what's what's That's next, cool. mate? After this is all over, what's next? It depends what starts up again, I suppose. You know. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm supposed to be playing. Actually, I've got a. A contract assigned to play with uh, Jeff Scott Soto. Um, oh yeah, he's great. Who's the From other guy? T- T- TSO. Yeah, and um, oh, what's his name? Who's singing for um, Richie Blackmore now? I don't know. Somebody Ramiro. I should know his name, but anyway, he's in the band. And then another guy who sings with Axel Rudy. I'm terrible at names. In this band, <laughs> but it, it's that's all right. I've already had a song. You'll know, the, you'll know their names when you uh, when you meet them. You know that. <laughs> I've, I've been like that my whole life. I got, uh, I, as you know, I studied for Saxon a few years ago, and I yeah. got down to the rehearsal to the rehearsal room in Brighton. And apart from the singer who I've I have met before, because I played with Blaze Bailey and he was on a few bills and stuff in the in the past, so I kind of knew him. And um, but the rest of the guys. I just didn't know. 
and I felt terrible. So I went, oh, and so we're there, you know, having a, a, a coffee break in between rehearsals. And I'm going, uh, and, and so how long have you been in the band? And, you know, and the Paula, what I know really well now, is like, oh, I'm just a founding member and wrote all the <laughs> songs and all this. I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, okay, mate, sorry. <laughs> Amazing. But I never get starstruck just due to the fact that I just don't know who the hell anybody is. <laughs> well, it's a good way to be, mate, because you're, you're just such a such a genuine bloke and um you know you've always got time for people and you can tell you know so it's Thanks, it's mate. uh there's no need to there's no need to be starstruck because you are a bloody star mate thank you so much for doing this it's no, been, thank uh, you for doing it. it's great it's been it's been really fun and obviously i'll let you know when this is going up and uh and yeah hopefully hopefully some people will pick up some interesting bits from it yeah brilliant so there we have it, another episode of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, this time with my brilliant friend, Wayne Banks. If you'd like to hear more from Wayne, and check out his band Messiah's Kiss at messiahskiss.com. Next week's guest is a very good friend of mine and X Factor superstar, Daniel Johnson. It's a real look behind the curtain of what happened in 2009, where Daniel came forth from the show. And Simon Cowell said Daniel was the best first audition he'd ever seen. This was a Jesse Smith production with music by Neil X, Mark Garfield and me. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do so by emailing stayinalivepod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of each other. Stay alive. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. We're done. Cut.